Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And then you realize when you look back at life, my God, I've got so much money in my bank account, but what I don't have is time. I don't have any more of those lost opportunities and experiences. I wish I'd been like that. I wish I'd nurtured and strengthened and continue to maintain that relationship. A Nobel Prize winning physicist, Chandrasekhar at University of Chicago, you know, he said close to the end of his life, he's talking about his regrets. He said, I wish I'd made enough time to study Shakespeare. And then on the other hand, if you're an Olympian oriented, sort of like, okay, it's the physicality, it's the sport, it's the pursuit of this kind of athletic excellence. Well, then what happens when you turn 30 and you have to retire from the sport and all your identity, all your identity is around the, uh, adulation from the masses and the um, excellence in the track and fields and all of that that you've taken on. You know, and, and one sees that in music with, with music stars and in Hollywood as well and all that, right? And so to me, like the offering, the lesson in that, you know, Srini is don't be only focused on what you are acquiring, attaining and performing on the outside, but focus on who you are becoming, who you are becoming as a human being. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hitendra, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Pleasure, Srini. I have fond memories of the last time, and um, I hope it wasn't too traumatizing for you or your listeners. Well, I, you know, I don't know if it was for me. It definitely wasn't for me. Maybe you know some of our listeners who won't tell you that, but no, <laughs> I mean, I I have referred back to that conversation multiple times. We included you know your a segment from that episode even in our Hero's Journey to Wisdom episode um, because it was just yeah. so poetic. So I am absolutely thrilled to have you back here. You have a no, new book out. Uh, called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, all of which we will get into. But before we get into the book, I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Yeah, you know, it's sweet that you asked that question. Um, of course, as I was putting the finishing touches to my book, you know, the question about sort of who to uh, really memorialize the book and really... Um, what is that thing called? I'm blanking out, you know, the very, very top of the book. 
the dedication or the for- dedication, yeah. the dedication, right? So who should I do the dedication for? And it was just like very obvious to me that this was going to be for my parents. And so I may not answer your question by pointing to any one of the two, but in the confluence of both of them, what I feel most blessed to have experienced is the combination of two of these five energies that I, that I, that I, you know, refer to in my book, wisdom and love. And my father was to me in many ways, kind of like a pillar, you know, of, of, of wisdom and my mother, a pillar of love. And, and yet by the time I was writing the dedication, I realized that, you know, Atendra, in the journey you made through life, as you look back at it and all those gestures and moments and choices and behaviors and how people were showing up, your father and your mother wasn't there encoded in the wisdom, a lot of love, you know, from your father and wasn't there encoded in the love, a lot of wisdom from your mother. It was different language, but in that language was actually the expression of the opposite, you know, as well. And so, yeah, so that's what I would offer, you know, I'm most taken from my parents is the, A, the blessing of, you know, simultaneously seeing the power of both wisdom and love in one's life and also recognizing that um, when you see it in one form, doesn't mean that the other is not there. In the purest form of wisdom, there will be love and the purest form of love, there will be wisdom. It's interesting that you you kind of mentioned this idea of it not being there because this is something that I've thought a lot about with my own parents and how love is expressed in Indian families. Like, I, you know, I remember when I learned about this whole love languages concept and I was like, okay, well, great. Minor yeah. words of affirmation and physical affection, two things that Indians are basically illiterate at as far as uh-huh. I'm concerned, or at least my family members. It's, it's kind of funny yeah. because those yeah. things don't, you know, come across. And I remember Philip McKernan in his book actually challenged the whole idea of love languages. And he said, look, he said, you can't just say, okay, that because love isn't expressed in the way that you want it to be expressed, that these people don't love you. So in, just to give you a, a concrete example, I remember yeah. when I when I wrote my books, I thought, you know, this is like the moment. And I remember the galley arrived. My dad didn't really seem phased by it. And I was like, man, I'm like, I've done all of this. And, you know, it, like the thought that he wouldn't, you know, read my books or be excited, I was kind of hurt. And then I like, you know, after taking some time to really reflect on it and a year of like, you know, proper thought, I was like, wait a minute, none of this would have been possible if he hadn't let me stay at their house to write the damn book. And that is an expression of love, If you know, if I've ever seen one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and, and then to continue to build on your thought, I love love that story that you just shared. Um, You know, in, in, in my mother's case, what I found is that she would have this practice, which she would encourage us also to have, which is from time to time just to be there, available, you know, um, in the presence of someone, uh, you know, just to be there for them. And sometimes in those moments, I would see her, for example, as my father was aging, you know, be there for him um, because he was retired now. He didn't have a very busy professional life uh, or an active, like everyday kind of social circle. And initially I would find those to be like, aren't they kind of relatively unproductive hours? Because all you're doing is just sitting there waiting for something to strike one or the other party who will then start a conversation or something. But the wisdom in that, you know, the wisdom in that practice of love and the way she was doing it came to me over time where I realized how, how much it actually truly fills the cup, you know, fills the cup of the other party in terms of a feeling of connection, of belonging, of a sense of wholeness and, and all of that. Uh, and so, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of value for each of us not to look at any of these terms, these ideas, 
just monolithically or instinctually, but to deepen our exploration and unpacking of them. Um, yeah. I value very much the idea of the five love languages. Um, I think that the way I see it is that, you know, if you want to approach them from a place of 100% personal responsibility, then what it means is two things. One is that the way you show up in other people's lives is by tuning into what love language will be of most value to them based on their own disposition as well as their unique circumstances. Like in your case, your unique circumstances were that you would appreciate, you know, getting that material support from your parents, being able to kind of live with them while you're writing the book. Um, and at the same time, while you are therefore, you know, offering them the form of love that would be of greatest, you know, appeal and value and service to them. At the same time, when you are receiving love from people, to recognize that there is this general human disposition to offer love in certain forms rather than others based on just who they are. And to be appreciative and open about the fact that, okay, I would have loved a little bit of, you know, perhaps more tenderness in the gestures or the, you know, words, but, but actually they were loving me in another form and that itself was a beautiful form. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so one thing I wonder as a parent, cause I know you had alluded to your daughter last time uh, we spoke and I believe she was like starting college, if I remember correctly. And right. what I wonder is how your own parents have influenced the way that you parent for better and for worse. Because you know, I always talk to friends and you know, there's this joke that we always say, it's like, you always tell your parents, like, I'm never going to be like that with my own kids. <laughs> and rumor has it that every parent basically finds themselves echoing the very things their own parents said to them that annoyed the hell out of them. Yeah. 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 And no, that's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, I've just, you know, I've been blessed to learn so many, so many things from my parents who I could rise to anywhere close to half that standard. I feel, you know, I feel pretty, yeah, you know, pretty good, you know, but my parenting. So one of them has just been this notion of unconditional love, which, um, you know, it's, it's part of also the cultural ethos, you know, having grown up uh, like you, Srini, in an Indian family is just, um, you know, such a core part of, you know, that, that, that culture, the notion of very hands-on, very supportive, very invested. The child becomes the central pillar in your life, you know, kind of thing, right? And so that really shaped me and my sisters in big ways and has been at least a striving from my wife and my side, you know, with, with our daughter. Um, another thing I found, you know, that was very, very valuable to me from them was uh, spirituality early in my life, um, invitation to develop uh, some kind of direct relationship, not a programmatic or ritualistic relationship, but a direct personal relationship with the divine and seek to create some form of exploration, some connection, whether it's through chanting or prayer or meditation or reading scriptural and other such wisdom, uh, having, you know, your own kind of daily conversations with the divine, just, just, you know, practices through which you feel much more connected to something that is eternal and timeless and, you know, um, ineffable, not easily expressed and seen in material form, but is the underlying sort of, uh, yeah, you know, blueprint of reality behind everything. That to me was very powerful and it's something that um, we have sought to bring, you know, for our daughter as well. And the third thing I would say is universality, universality in terms of breaking out of any kind of, you know, boxes, you know, in terms of your identity, whether it's about gender, whether it's about race, whether it's about nationality or um, the period of time in history that we're living through or whatever it might be. But instead to see and recognize that there is beauty in humanity in, in, in all, uh, in fact, there is a throbbing and, you know, kind of pure flow of life that happens even beyond humanity across nature and the universe. 
And how do you tap into that? How do you use that to, in some almost paradoxical way, become the best unique version of your own self, which I know is so much, you know, your, your calling, the unmistakable creative, you know, finding your own kind of like true path. Um, so how, how do you get to your own true path, but by opening your heart up to a certain kind of, you know, universality of identity? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the other reason that this question interests me so much is because you know, you're an immigrant, you're an educator, much like my dad is, and you know, you have like inherited certain cultural narratives. Like I realize now why my parents, you know, gave us the advice to pursue stable and secure career paths. It's just based on the context that they grew up in. So I wonder yeah. what advice have you given your daughter about making her way in the world? especially given that you have this sort of tension between, you know, the cultural narrative of having grown up in India, which basically instills a certain sort of linear mindset about, you know, life trajectories and career trajectories. And then your daughter's, you know, being like raised in American culture, which basically instills a whole different set of values. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one way in which um, for me, there was already a bridge being built between these two worlds is because um, I was a bit of a rebel. So on the one hand, I was very invested in my, you know, academic and professional like pursuit of success, which would warm any uh, Indian parents' heart, <laughs> you know, to see in the kids. Uh, and my parents didn't have any problem with me on that one, on that front. But at the same time, I was very much questioning of these very established channels. Grow up and take these courses and become an engineer or take these courses and become a Indian civil servant or become a, a doctor. And, you know, those uh, pursuits and outcomes didn't really interest me. I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I, I knew I didn't want to be this or didn't want to be that. And so from a fairly early age, you know, 16 or so, I started to challenge and question and rebel against, you know, the institutional sort of expectations. And then there's the universality. Um, you know, this this notion that, you know, rather than put yourself in a box to be able to see yourself in some ways as pure spirit in whichever gender or race or nationality or language or geography or, you know, walk of life that you have been put in. But that's, you know, that's a, that's a very, you know, evolvable box. You know, that box by itself doesn't in any way define or limit you, but you can, you can be what it is the divine spark within is guiding you to be. And to that end, how do you sort of embrace and connect with, you know, all, all, all aspects of, of life and all, all kinds of communities and people in the world so that A, you are able to see humanity and your shared connection with not just every human being, but really even life at large. And B, in doing that, you feel very attuned and anchored in your own unique divine spark to be free to become Something which, if you put yourself in a box, it would have limited you to just being what you have assumed people need to be in that box. But now that you've freed yourself from the box, become in some ways universal, you've also become in some ways very deeply individual, you know, to your own spark. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's interesting because this is like the advice that I think I'm getting that your daughter gets from Hithendra, the spiritual teacher and author. How does that align with, you know, Hithendra, the educator and professor at an elite university? Tell me like from that well, perspective. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, as you were saying, my daughter was just about to you know, get to college when we did our last conversation together on, you know, on the unmistakable creative. So when she was applying to college, um, you know, just like many college applicants, you know, she was, she was feeling, you know, a certain drive and an aspiration and all that. And I, in my conversation with her, basically offered her the following advice, which is, look, 
um, my daughter, if there's anything I can offer from, you know, from my lens, having, having gone around the sun a few more circles than, than you, it's that I've spent time on a few Ivy League campuses. I've been blessed to Yale and MIT and, and then Columbia. And, and then I've met known people from, you know, many diverse campuses in terms of their college and graduate school pursuits. And I can tell you this, yeah, it is possible. Yes, absolutely. That in some of these, you know, Ivy League slash MIT kind of places, you get a certain kind of something, you know, whether it's professional drive, you know, high performance orientation, a network and intellectual rigor and all of that. Yeah, you, 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 you know, I'm sure, I'm sure get that. But if one's goal in life is to be a nice person and to be a happy person, I have certainly not found that people from any, you know, university as such are any nicer and happier than people from any other university. And so from that vantage point, what I want you to know is that as far as your mom is concerned and I'm concerned, you know, to us, you know, we are cheering you on to live a beautiful and good and whole life. And any university you end up going to will, you know, ultimately make us really happy as long as you go there and tap it for, you know, the full potentialities it offers you. Because, uh, you know, while some might be better ranked than others, there's nothing that I've found that suggests that it ends up producing uh, better human beings <laughs> than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just one more brief part about this on education. We'll get into the book. Uh, you know, like I had the, the good fortune to come and speak to your class, uh, which I, I love because I was like, great. I get to go to speak to a business school class at a business school that rejected. Yeah. This is like the ultimate vindication. <laughs> um, I have fond but- memories of that. Yeah, but as I, I've asked every educator, you know, we're clearly in a situation where it's kind of a problem. Like it's clearly in need of reinvention. It clearly needs to be updated. And given your background, both as a spiritual teacher and as an educator, if you were tasked with redesigning this entire thing from the ground up and they said, okay, you are now in charge of redesigning everything at Columbia, how would you change things? Yeah, it's a great, 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 great question. We have created institutions that really advance the cultivation of the intellect, for which I applaud them and I find them very nourishing and it draws me, you know, into, into the world. At the same time, there are other of the human faculties. You know, if you take the physical part of who you are, the awareness of bodily intelligence of, you know, how you want to create the conditions for a physically you know, long and happy life, healthy life, um, whether it's nutrition, whether it's sleep, whether it's exercise and all of that stuff. Um, then your heart, you know, your capacity to be in a state of compassionate connection with um, the people that you are immediately in relationships with. And then also the wide world beyond, even to the extent of the planet itself. How do you open your heart up to having those kinds of connections and conversations? Then it's your spirit the nurturing and the activation and the expression of this most powerful, powerful center of your being, your spirit. These are things that we, you know, unfortunately and painfully so, have not really pursued much in uh, the way college and graduate school has been organized. The assumption is that if you're coming in here for a law degree or a medicine degree or a business degree, well, then we ought to teach you the technical and functional aspects of law and medicine and business. But how do you get along with people? How do you inspire yourself and others during, you know, tough times? 
How do you kind of build bridges and resolve conflict? How do you cultivate trust? How do you create like a, you know, a real purpose and a vision? How do you connect with your inner voice and conscience? How do you rise above the fray and not get yourself swept up by the passions of the masses that might be sort of in fashion on a given day? How do you make sure that you don't allow yourself to be in some ways corrupted, you know, by certain pulls and impulses that, you know, take you away from the very authentic, you know, true nature of somebody who wants to go on a very virtuous and beautiful human and heroic journey. You mm-hmm. know, these are things which painfully so we don't have a lot of room and space for in the rush of reading, you know, tens and hundreds of books and tens and hundreds of papers and, you know, finishing assignments and taking exams. And then you get that A plus grade and you're a brilliant student, you know, and, uh, and then you go out and then you, you know, chill out with your friends and you party and, you know, engage in some club activity. I, I respect all of that, respect all of that, but there's so much doing there. There's not much, you know, reflecting there. There's not much deep connecting there. There's not much being in a deep state of being there. And so that's what I would do. If I were to create, you know, education from, you know, ground zero up, I would, I would want to architect it around honoring all of these human faculties that make us whole and that make us more complete. Uh, I would want to create a structure and a curriculum that was not just in the classroom, but in nature that... And, you know, engage people on certain kinds of collective quests that open them up to service to the local community that give them a place for deep reflection and habit formation and a cultivation of character and ultimately a practice of a certain more informed, compassionate form of leadership. Yeah. Like if I were to summarize everything you said, it sounds like we should build our education system around this idea of inner mastery and outer impact. Yeah, I'm grateful that you draw that link. Um, you know, you know, uh, as much as I do that, uh, that has been the very, very sort of center of my life over the last 15 years, building out a journey and a curriculum and a certain structured approach towards pursuit of outer success. You know, that's the outer impact part, but from a place of, you know, an inner quest, you know, an inner pursuit of success, uh, which is the inner mastery part. And, and, and yes, you're right. I mean, I, I, the whole reason I started is because I, saw a gap in our curriculum initially at the business school, you know, where I teach at Columbia, as you've said, but then increasingly over time, I realized that um, this kind of is the missing core to education more broadly. Mm-hmm. So what is it that is making this kind of change so difficult? Because I can tell you, like, I could literally write, in fact, I'm working on it, a guide on how to reinvent the education system or redesign it based on all the conversations I've had. Yet, despite all these conversations with all these professors, I don't actually see any of these changes occurring anywhere. So what is the obstacle to this kind of change? Yeah, I mean, look, we are, depending on your perspective, either at a place where, you know, institutions like the Ivy Leagues, you know, feel very successful about their model and how they're showing up and what they're doing. So, you know, institutions tend to typically be more conservative than any individual is. And so, understandably so, they do not want to tinker with a model that has worked for them for, you know, 100 plus years. Um, And so that's one, that's one thing, right, which limits the capacity for transformative change. Um, In addition, it um, is a community that, since it thrives on the intellect, may sometimes not very actively be invested 
in some of these other dimensions uh, to advance the, you know, more, if you want to call it whole person spiritual journey for people. And so if they're not that invested in it, then they're probably not seeing the merit in it, right? They're not seeing the logic for it. And they're seeing that they're able to churn out these graduates who go to, you know, um, ultimately, you know, um, leadership positions and, you know, performance, you know, high, uh, the pursuit of high, you know, performance in, in law and medicine and, and business and beyond. And they're doing well, you know, at some level in their professional journey. So why do they need to tinker with that system? You know, that, that question comes up for them. And of course, you know, you and I might say, because while these people seemingly are doing well, they're actually not that happy. And they're actually not that super healthy. And they're going to have a little bit of struggle, you know, as they grow older with regard to all the chronic diseases and the frayed relationships and, and also the, in a sense, frayed fabric of society. You know, with what is happening to the environment, what's happening in social divisions, the rising levels of income inequality, the lack of meaning for people at work, et cetera, et cetera, right? So these are soft measures. These are less, you know, visible measures you know, the financial success of an individual, um, where that individual is in the hierarchy of their discipline, those are more like visceral and physical and immediately, you know, vis- you know kind of seeable measures. Um, and so until we open ourselves up to being able to tune in to some of these, you know, less visible, but in some ways, even more important and real energies, you know, in, in the world and recognize the link between choices we make today and outcomes that happen over time, because of these, uh, it's you know it's going to be it's going to be a swimming upstream you know for you to you know to pursue that kind of reform. That said, I think there are some very positive trends that are going on. You know you know those as much as I. Uh, you know you're tapping into them in your own work. This uh, increasing hunger you know for, for happiness, for meaning, for purpose, for uh, opening ourselves up to a whole person existence, to be able to connect more with our authentic voice and just get so much more, you know, from everything, you know, that we pursue in life, the um, unshackling from, you know, stereotypical norms and imposed norms and certain power structures and all in the world so that people and communities and minorities and others can kind of like be themselves. I think there is a lot of positive ramifications of that to the extent that people are using that to open themselves up to deeper realizations than what, you know, conventional education can give them wherever they're tapping it from, whether it's meditation, mindfulness and yoga and Buddhism and Zen or um, positive psychology, um, and in doing so, make them you know better versions of themselves. Uh, so I think that knowledge is exploding. Those practices are coming into you know practical reality, even for the youth. Uh, there are some professors who therefore you know experimented with classes on, on, on happiness. My dear friend Arthur Brooks, you know at Harvard is an example of that. There is a professor at Yale who's uh, teaching a very very popular course on happiness. I'm blessed to have my personal leadership and success course at Columbia, and um, and so. You know, so there are these pockets where certain new practices are taking root, which I think in some ways hold promise and might be forerunners of some, you know, future more broadly embraced form of, uh, you know, education. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into the book. So you start out early on the book by saying that consciously or unconsciously, we're all seeking both inner and outer success. When we experience an alignment between our outer ambitions and our inner self, we feel energized, committed, at peace, fulfilled, integrated, understood, and validated for who we are. Our inner and outer worlds are in harmony, but finding that harmony takes work. 
So talk to me about that actual work as it relates to the concept of inner mastery. Yeah, yeah. See, first, let's just make sure that any or all of us can make it tangible to yourself that there is this tension. You know, you want to you please somebody else, including just like the people in your family, you know, your own loved ones and others, your friends, you know, and all that. But also, you kind of like want to do things your way. You, you, you want to be able to hold sway over the world and, and change it and fix it to conform exactly to your vision. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, imagine if everybody starts to do that in the world. What a crazy society we would have. How would we have a culture where people sacrifice for others, where people accommodate others, where people come together and give and take to build like collective outcomes? Um, and so it's in the very nature of things. It's in the very nature of things on this planet that we have to ultimately find a way to cohabit a space and co-create it. And so to that end, the realization, you know, comes to us at times that is it going to have to be like a choice between either I kind of like seek to just become whoever I want to, or I conform more to the, you know, to the demands and whims of the world? Is, is there, does it have to be a choice like that? Or is there a third path? And what I'm doing in the book is, as you just so thoughtfully quoted, is, is offering like the third path where you can bring the inner and outer together. You can bring your own individual and then also a sense of community together into one whole thing. And that whole thing happens when you start to operate from your core. You know, your core is the space from where your best self arises. You know, when, when you're at your core and I'm at my core, we are beyond ego. We are beyond attachments. We are beyond insecurities. We are beyond even habits and impulses and personality to be deeply committed to some noble cause, deeply connected with the people we are with and those we are serving, deeply curious and open to new learnings and deeply calm and, and receptive to truth in whichever form it comes and, and centered in some joyful spirit that lies at the very center of our being. And, and so what happens is that when you work on not just drifting in and out of your core and sometimes glimpsing it and on other days you're kind of way, way, way out of it. Rather than living life that way, which is kind of how most of us work. But if you can get to a place where there are certain disciplines and structures you take on to get closer and closer and closer to your core, discover it, relish it, and then ultimately express it in all you do. Then as it comes shining through, you find that, yeah, just things conspire to work more in your favor than otherwise. People like you more. They're more receptive and open to your guidance. They resolve conflicts with you that much more easily. They open themselves up to even being led by you. And, you know, this doesn't happen because your needs and hungers and positions on issues stays very rigid and fixed. And then somehow magically you gain these heroic qualities which draws everybody else towards you. That's what, um, you know, we, we might perhaps naively think or hope for, you know, we would get when we really pursue this path of the core. Instead, what happens is that as you start, you know, cultivating and connecting more with that space within, that inner voice, that purity of your heart, you know, that place of deep commitment and, and clarity, what happens is that there is a certain harmonization that is happening between your inner and outer in a way that A, will in some cases, absolutely, you know, create just more of a pull, more of an openness from people towards you. And so that's how things get harmonized because the outer world shifts and changes in a way that is aligned with your own aspirations. 
But B, it can also happen that you shift and change and that you start to open yourself up to being so much more empathetically connected, more accommodating, more interested and attuned to other people's agendas, listening and learning from the outside in, from other people's critiques, rather than just from your own very place of stubbornness about your ideas. And so you start to abandon, open yourself up to new points of view rather than just getting very fixated. And then a third thing that happens from time to time is that somehow, even while there may be a conflict between the inner and the outer in terms of what the world is looking for versus what you're looking for, you get some wisdom for how to be in harmony from inside and accept the world for what it is or pursue change in some aspect of the world where you want to have a meaningful impact. And because in that case, it becomes part of your purpose and you want to be able to manifest that change. Therefore, seeing that aspect of the world as muddy or inharmonious with you doesn't by itself jar you. It motivates you. It directs you. It gives you purpose. And so again, that allows you to reclaim harmony. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. So you bring up, mentioned these five core energies, which are purpose, wisdom, growth, love, and self-realization. And what I want to talk about is how each one of those relates to the two the things you talk about. Because in each one of these, you talk about living with them, uh, or living with them, loving with them, and leading with them. But there's one other quote that really caught my attention, and probably was the one that stood out to me the most out of the entire book, which I've always, I found this to be kind of a funny paradox. Here's a sobering realization. There's no teacher, no teaching, no path that can guarantee outer success. And yet, the irony of that is people are reading this book in hopes of becoming potentially more successful, and they're listening to podcasts like this one. (laughs) Yeah, well, because there is a science to it, even though there's no guarantee for it, right? There is a science to it with no guarantee for it. And to me, one of my role models is Someone in your own neck of the woods in LA, um, John Wooden, right? You know John Shreeney, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Well, not personally, and, uh, but yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he um, was the coach of the UCLA basketball team, as you know, and um, he would tell the uh, UCLA team that, listen, guys, I don't care if you win or lose. So here's a coach, all right? He's being you know, charged with getting to create a winning team. And he says, I don't care if you win or lose. He says, what I do care about is if at the end of every game, when you walk out, will you be able to tell yourself, yes, I played my best game. And he didn't even say, will you be able to convince me that you played your best game? He said, will you be able to tell yourself? Because look, I mean, if you're a little injured, you know, today and all that, how can I tell like how much of a great game you can play or not? Your body will tell you, your own spirit will tell you, and I can't. But if I can get you motivated to playing your best game and then give you the technical and functional skills, of course, you know, as a coach, then um, where does that take you? Without obsessing over victory, not caring about whether you win or lose. Well, it turns out in the case of the UCLA team, they ended up being the winningest basketball team in college history. It's incredible. You know, they won about 12 or 13 annual titles, right? Championships. Um, Whereas the next most successful coach after John Wooden, you know, his team has won about six titles or five titles. So a vast gap between the second and third and fourth and fifth most successful coaches versus the, the most successful. And the most successful is basically saying, I don't care about whether we succeed or fail in any given game. So that's the paradox, you know, just like you pointed out in that quote from my book, which is something worth exploring and worth embracing. And I would offer that when people are coming here to listen to your podcast and and then pursue anything that uh, I and others can offer, that's the invitation, you know, that we have, which is like learn, in a sense, the more advanced game of the pursuit of success by studying the outliers, the John Woodens, the Mahatma Gandhis, the Mother Teresas, the Abraham Lincolns, the Steve Jobs. Learn from these people who are not just average successful, but like super outliers. Because what you find in these people, to me, is like, a sense of deep rootedness in some of these ideas that may challenge our system of Western logic from the 
17, 18, 1900s when science was making great strides. But today is getting almost like scientific proof that a more mystic, a more sort of, um, you know, integrative, um, a more, um, yeah, just timeless and almost like spiritual uh, approach to pursuing not just your retreats and your meditations, but actually your life can make not just spiritual, but a material difference. So I want to talk about the outliers a bit because uh, this is something you hear over and over. Paul Graham wrote about this in his essay on wealth saying that, you know, like, let's not use outliers as role models. And I think that the the problem that I find with outliers is that we often mix up causation with correlation, right? You look at outlier behavior, it's like Steve Jobs is an asshole. That's why he's successful. So people think, okay, I'm just going to behave like a horrible person. Or Elon Musk barely sleeps. So if I barely sleep, I'm going to... <laughs> you know, become successful. Yeah. And my biggest issue with sort of outliers as role models for success is that we, we overlook context, you know, and we don't consider a lot of their inequalities. Um, I think that there's a difference between modeling and mimicking. And too often, I think people tend to mimic as, you know, expecting the same kinds of results. Um, it's funny, I want to hear your, your take on this, because I actually wrote an article titled Why Outliers Are Lousy Role Models for Most of Us. Yeah, yeah, you, you know it's 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 a great point. I'm so happy that you're bringing it up. This conversation would be incomplete without raising the concerns that you just have. So it allows us to unpack this a little bit more. I very much agree that there is the risk that we may misapply lessons, learnings, insights from role models, as you so hilariously pointed out in a couple of the examples you just gave. So here is um, the way around that. To me. First of all, if you completely dispense with these people, there is a missed opportunity. There's a missed opportunity because, see, there are things that humanity can do today and that certain individuals can manifest, which like until 200 years ago or 100 years ago, these things were considered impossible. You know, the level of IQ that people can have, the speed at which they can actually run, you know, the length of distance they can run and, you know, et cetera. So we know that humanities had a much more dimmer view of his potential and his capacities at any given point in human history than what it has actually over time been able to achieve. And if you just were to look at history and understand and agree with that, then to me, what these outliers do is that they, in some ways, point us to those hidden potentialities in people. So that rather than getting bogged down with what is like so-called the norm around you, what most people do descriptively, you think about the world in more prescriptive terms in terms of, yeah, but what are the best exemplars, the best kind of, you know, um, pursuers of this or that or modelers of this or that. And let me study those people because they help me get a glimpse of what is my own highest potential. So that's why I would, I would encourage us to not throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the concerns and criticisms that you have legitimately raised, right? Now, how do you address those criticisms you raise? To me, there are two things in particular that you and I can all benefit from in studying and learning from role models. The first is not to seek to, like you said, mimic them from the outside, but model them from the inside. Now, what that means is like, if you're only going to like try to copy their outer behavior, you know, from the outside, from what I've studied and found from studying these kinds of folks is that you have to be everything and the complete opposite. It just depends on the situation. It literally just depends on the situation. For example, suppose you're drawn to like, peace and love and compassion and all of that. And, and you feel like, you know, it's wrong to kill people. You know, that's what Gandhi said. You know, it's wrong to kill people, non-violence, right? Um, 
And then if you go back to like the Churchillian days of the Second World War or the Lincoln days of the Civil War, would any of us like fault any of those two individuals for putting some of the young men into a uniform and asking them to go out and fight and be open to both killing and being killed? Um, it was for a very virtuous reason for the advancement and saving of human civilization and all of that stuff. And so from the outside, depending on the condition and the context you're in, people may have to be this and people may have to be that. And therefore, if you seek to emulate them based on what they're doing on the outside, it's not going to get you to a, to a good place. On the other hand, how are they approaching those moments from the inside, from the inside? That is where I start to see common ground. The notion of accessing the core, the notion of helping other people access the core, the core being the space from where you have this deep commitment, you have this deep clarity of mind, you have this deep calmness and connection and, you know, and centeredness. And so those are the qualities, you know, the way they were being, not necessarily what they were doing, that I would encourage us to study and investigate. And that's been a harder journey because a lot of, you know, times you don't really know what's going on in their inner life. But yes, you know, through the, you know, deep, deep, deep work uh, from the autobiographies and biographies that are out there, I found that it is possible to get glimpses, you know, rich, deep, profound tours of their inner life. Um, and then the second thing I think that we can all do in order to not run the risk of, um, you know, misusing, you know, their, 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 their data points and stories is rather than just see them for the larger arc of, of their life, which can get a little bit monolithic and a little bit sort of too out of reach and makes them look like, wow, like, you know, first of all, what do I have to learn from this person who lived in a very different century in a very different, you know, place and time? And, and secondly, I mean, like, come on, like this person is like a superhuman. I, I'm just human. Uh, you know, those kind of like, you know, limiting beliefs come in. Now, as opposed to that, what you can do, which I have found extremely rewarding, is study the life under a microscope. Study what I call moments of truth. Moments of truth are where there was a certain speech they had to give or a certain conversation they had to have with one individual or a certain presentation they had to do at one meeting or a certain conflict they had to resolve, etc. And what we find is that if you look at your their life in that frame-by-frame frame way, using kind of like an expression from Hollywood, right? Movie making. A frame by frame way. If you look at their life in a frame by frame, and you look at one frame at a time, a given frame where how did Mandela resolve this tension point with this general at that point in, um, you know, the conversation? How did, you know, Gandhi, you know, what speech did he give to melt and open the hearts of the British judge when he was being tried for sedition, etc.? There you start to find very learnable lessons. There you start to find some very tactical ahas, which make you realize... This is how these people were able to hold their own and ultimately win people's hearts and minds in terms of the specific energies and actions that they were able to manifest. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, let's get into the concepts uh, of what you call the five core energies and talk about living and leading with them. And, and let's start with purpose because you talk about goals as they relate to purpose. And you say goals are outer material things we wish to attain, education, money, acclaim, love, power, impact, promotion. We become attached to our goals, believing that when achieved, they will make us happy. But research shows that our happiness in achieving goals is short-lived. Purpose shifts our focus from our goals to the values that reside in our inner core. So talk to me about this idea of living with purpose as it relates to goals, inner mastery, and outer impact. It's a very liberating thing when you are able to shift your affections and attachments away from goals to the underlying values and purpose that you want to serve. because. What happens is when we get too obsessed with goals, like I've got to launch this product in two years, I better build a business of this size by four years. Otherwise, 
you know, what am I doing? Otherwise, like I have low self-worth and I feel like a loser compared to my friend who's I'm benchmarking with and who's done so much with his life. Or, you know, I need to fall in love by, you know, the next three years because my clock is ticking and I want to have a happy family with three kids and, and what have you. Um, and the reason that is a very punishing path to take is because, you know, there's like so much that is out of our control. You know, what cards will life deal me tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll try my best to play with them the best possible way, but I, I don't know what those cards are. You know, and 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 um, increasingly so, that's the case with the level of complexity and change and uncertainty there is in our worlds. And so you get like really held hostage to by all these winds of change and uncertainty in the world. There's anxiety, there's frustration, disappointment, a feeling like I didn't deserve this and what have you that comes to you. If you just start to work with and assume that, hey, if I just do the right things and the right things will come to me. Because unfortunately, the world is not that linear. Now, the other approach is where, like you were saying, you get very anchored in a set of values, which are like, why do I want to pursue these goals? Why do I want to launch this product in, in, two, in two years? And you might conclude it's because I really care about this aspect of this need in humanity. And I want to put it out there because I think it can be of service. All right. Well, if that's the core value, which is you want to serve humanity, you want to serve it in this arena and you want to do it by providing a certain solution. Well, then tomorrow, for some reason, if there are some pivots and shifts and, you know, there's less venture capital money going into your business or a certain struggle you've had with like a certain door being shut in terms of the failure of a certain product or a certain talent in your organization leaves you. Well, what you're going to do is then reaffirm, reaffirm your core value, which is this is my value. This is what I'm trying to manifest and then re-express, re-express it in a way that will be most appropriate and suitable for the new conditions you find yourself in. And so you're constantly staying very anchored in your purpose, but being very adaptive in your goals. Anchored in your purpose and adaptive in your goals. So let's talk about this as it relates to wisdom when it comes to inner and outer, uh, you know, outer impact, inner mastery. And first of all, let's define wisdom because I feel like that is such a nebulous concept. Sorry, um, I got blanked out for a minute. Uh, can you edit this out? Yeah, yeah, we'll do an edit. Josh, make a okay. note here, please. Thanks, Rini. Would you mind repeating that question? Yeah. So let's talk about this in the context of wisdom and how it relates to uh, inner mastery and outer impact. And, and I think we need to define wisdom because I, like, as I'm going through this conversation, I'm thinking, how do you actually define wisdom? Like, What is it? Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. So one thing I, I talk about in a book is um, how intelligence is not the same as wisdom and how in some of the latest research, what psychologists have shown is that you can be super intelligent, but you might end up making really poor decisions. And the reason is that when you are very intelligent, typically means you are very respected by people for that um, blazing genius that you have. You are able to uh, think on your feet and marshal all the facts and very, you know, persuasively convince other people that you're right and they're wrong. And they're not able to react, you know, with as much uh, intellectual horsepower as you have. Uh, you're also less interested in wanting to ask other people their opinion and to seek help from other people when you struggle at something. Because after all, you're qualified. You have the PhD. You're like considered an expert. You know, you're super smart. So you should have all the answers. Isn't that what like people are paying you for, <laughs> you know? And so what happens is that as a result of all of that, if the world stays in a very fixed kind of situation, 
Sure. If you've got mastery over, you know, all the cases and nuances, you know, in that situation to all the degrees and experience you have, you, you know, probably repeatedly get a lot of success. But as conditions change in the world, as conditions change in the world, it turns out that, you know, it's not clear whether the way that you have built a model in your head about what should happen to what conditions to pursue success, if that model works anymore and what parts of it work and what parts of it don't. And so as the world starts shifting and changing, your intelligence can be your own downfall because by asking less questions of others, reaching out less to other people for their help and trying to blaze through with, you know, all, all the experience from the past and the genius that you have to win every argument, you're not opening yourself up to new learning, to new attunement, to new changes that are going on in, in the environment, in the world and new ideas, maybe fresh ideas, maybe ideas from people with much less experience than you, but who actually grown up as natives in this new economy, on this new digital environment or whatever it is that is going on around you. Um, and so intelligence is a false god. However, wisdom is where you are able to marry your intelligence because after all, there is some, you know, there's definitely some really great value in having a good intellect and being able to analyze and break things down and logically look at things and collect the right data and all of that. There is value in that. But wisdom is about combining that intelligence with what I call a great intention. And intention means you have to be able to walk into every decision-making situation, every interaction with the intention of looking for only one thing. And what is that? And that is truth. Looking for the truth in all situations. And truth can be complicated. Truth can evolve so that what you knew before may not be what's true today. Truth can be multifaceted where you may have certain you know things that you really strongly want to hold on to but there could be other things that other people may bring to the table where when you look at their facets and your facets and you honor the truth in both, you build truth out like a diamond. And so wisdom is a deep commitment to uncovering the truth in all matters. And for that, you know, to create that intention in addition to the intelligence, one needs socio-emotional intelligence, so to say. In other words, being aware of your emotional state, that of other people, making sure you stay grounded, open, interested, humble, um, you know, create a state of inquiry and discovery, integration between one and a certain, you know, alternative idea. Um, and so through those kind of, you know, much more nuanced approaches to your inner life, uh, with regards to emotions and thoughts and beliefs, you get to a point where you can create the right intentionality. And then that intentionality combined with that conventional appreciation we have for intelligence, you know, that can take you far on the path to wisdom. Well, let's finish this up by talking about living and leading with growth and then living and leading with love. In the section on living and leading with growth, you say that across all spheres of human endeavor, athletics, performing arts, science, business, and beyond, we admire people who engage in the dogged pursuit of excellence and scale new heights in their fields. When they arrive at the summit to claim victory, we look back at their roots and are in awe about how much they've grown and how much they've achieved. And yet, the single-minded devotion to the mastery of their discipline has led many legends to very dark places, depression, loneliness, a struggle to be happy. You know, we've all heard some version of that, you know, over and over. Like, you, know, you tell people, it's like, oh, money won't, you know, make you happy. And that's like, you know, you're like, well, well that's convenient for a billionaire to tell you that. It's uh -huh. kind of the thought that goes, I think, through all of our minds. Like, I, you know, I had uh, Jim McKelvey, who was a co-founder of Square here. And yeah, it like, yeah, that was kind of my thought at the moment. I was like, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. Like, when was the last time you worried about money? 
Yeah. I mean, first of all, it makes complete and perfect sense that as a key priority in life, we make sure that we have enough and provide enough for ourselves and for our families, you know, those who are dependent on us, those with whom we have some uh, responsibility, you know, financially. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and also really take care of ours and other people's health, right? And so, no brainer. The challenge comes where you get to keep pursuing these outcomes. You know, let's say if you're very fond of physical sport and, you know, a pursuit of excellence, you want to make your body just that much more perfect, that much stronger, that much faster, and you want to be in the Olympics and you want to win that medal and all of that. Um, or then you do the same with, with money, right? Where and when will you stop, right? In the case of money, you can just keep going on and on and on and on until, until you get to a point where you just are physically, are, you know, ragged and just unable to engage anymore with your business. And then, and then you realize when you look back at life, my God, I've got so much money in my bank account, but what I don't have is time. I don't have any more of those lost opportunities and experiences. I wish I'd been like that. I wish I'd nurtured and strengthened and continue to maintain that relationship. I wish as a Nobel Prize winning physicist, very beloved as a professor as well, Chandrasekhar at University of Chicago, you know, he said, I wish I'd made time. This was close to the end of his life. He's talking about his regrets. He said, I wish I'd made enough time to study Shakespeare, you know, and, um, and then, and then on the other hand, if you're an Olympian oriented, sort of like, okay, it's the physicality, it's the sport, it's the pursuit of this kind of athletic excellence. Well, then what happens when you turn 30 and you have to retire from the sport and all your identity, all your identity is around the, uh, adulation from the masses and the, um, excellence in the track and fields and all of that that you've taken on. So, you know, and, and one sees that in music with, with music stars and in Hollywood as well and all that, right? And so to me, like the offering and the lesson in that, you know, Srini is don't be only focused on what you are acquiring, attaining and performing on the outside, but focus on who you are becoming, who you are becoming as a human being. And when you do that, then you don't have to do that at the cost of some of those outer things. And we've spoken about that a little bit earlier in this podcast. But the essence of growth is to be able to, again, harmonize the inside out and the outside in. The inside out is where you feel really invested in your own self-realization, your own engagement with and mastery of like the forces inside you and how they are revealed and you know, manifested in the world. And then the outside in is that, yes, you take life's challenges, life's ambitions that you have and use them to mold you and shape you, but not merely in terms of, you know, just who you are superficially in terms of your physical self or your technical functional self, but also who you become from within your relationship with humanity, your relationship with life, your largeness of character, you know, et cetera. So inside out and outside in as a more holistic sort of, you know, discipline through which you grow in a balanced way. Well, let's wrap this up by talking about love as it relates to uh, inner mastery and outer impact. And give me an idea of like what role love plays in all of this. What role does love not play? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's more and more when I'm coming out. I mean, just a moment ago, you and I were sharing this tender, sweet moment, you know, between you and your nephew. And uh, it was such a joy to both experience him and to... Uh, 
you know, here through your words, right? The um, beautiful connective tissue we have in humanity as Rumi, you know, this, this um, really, really lovely Sufi poet, you know, he once said, he said, love is the bridge between you and everything. He's not saying between you and your family, not you and your nation, between you, not even you and your humanity, you and everything. So to me, love is a very untapped or undertapped um, universal power that any or all of us can access, which when we do, it ends up imbuing so much more meaning to our suffering, to our hard work, to our sacrifice. It ends up attuning ourselves to a much more collective rather than individual reality, a shared reality. It makes us be in a position to be good citizens, be good family members, be good you know, employees in an organization, good as in collaborative, open, committed, and all of that. It, it you know, helps us, you know, love helps us be all of that, not because it's the right thing to do, not because others are asking me to do it, not because it's going to end up getting people to love me more or make me, you know, rise through the ranks and get better salary. It allows you and makes you a good citizen, a good employee, a good family member because, because of that love, because you, you, you love, you know, your company and its cause. You, you, you love the people you work with. You love the product you're launching. You, you love the community you're part of and you want, you want to serve them. You, you love this person, your family, and, you know, you joyfully sacrifice for them because, because you love it. Um, and so, um, to me, without love, you know, the whole fabric of society would completely break down. The fabric of family would completely break down. Fabric of organizations would break down. And those of us who have been painfully so, painfully so, in a broken family, in a dysfunctional organization, in a fractured nation, you know, we, we know what happens when um, love is compromised. Wow. Um, well, I think that that makes such a beautiful place to uh, finish our conversation. And of course, I have one final question for you. And I'm always interested to see how people answer this when they come back. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, um, I want to end with, uh, first of all, a big thank you to you for continuing to light you know, this fire with unmistakable creative. It's, it's a really beautiful brand and message and movement. Um, and thank your audience for being patient listeners all the way through. And then uh, to me, like um, one signature piece around this that I can offer to you all is the very ending of my book where Einstein one asked Gand once asked Gandhi, he was seeing some film footage of Gandhi, as to Mr. Gandhi, you know, what is this gesture that you put, which is the folding of your hands? It's a traditional Indian way of breathing called the Namaste. And, um, and Gandhi replied in his letter to explain to Einstein what it is. And this is what he said. And these can be my final words then for us. Uh, he said, Namaste, I honor the space within, within you where your best self arises. That space where there is only peace and love and wisdom and joy and light. I honor the space within you where when you're in that space and I am in that space, then there is only one of us. Beautiful. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for uh, returning to the show and taking the time to share your wisdom, your insights, and your story with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the new book, and everything else? 
Yeah, I'd be delighted to have some of us visit. Um, my personal website is hitendra.com, H-I-T-E-N-D-R-A.com. The book is Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. You will find an invitation to sign up for my newsletter if you come to my hitendra.com website. And if you're interested in the organizational form of the work I do, we do leadership development and culture work to help create inspired organizations. And that is the organization I founded called Mentora.Institute. Mentora, that's M-E-N-T-O-R-A dot institute. And then we are working towards creating youth change makers, for which I invite you to my foundation. It's called Mentora.Foundation. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.